Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us, uh, our our old friend, our good friend, Peter Grandich from PeterGrandich.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, his book, you can get it at PeterGrandich.com. You can read it at PeterGrandich.com. Uh, and uh, he's been on here a, a bunch of times. And Peter, it's always a great day when I get a chance to sit down and chat with you. You know, now that I came to see you and you say an old friend, I don't really know which way you mean that, but that's okay. <laughs> well, um, as somebody who is who is approaching a milestone birthday <laughs> within the next few days, I'm not sure which way I mean this either, but I can okay. agree with that. Whichever way I mean it, I'm, I am there with you on that path, my friend. <laughs> gotcha. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, and so I, I approach things with a sense of optimism usually. Um, however, I look at the landscape around you know, the banking crisis that we're going through right now, um, which seems to have momentarily settled down. And I can't think of any reason to be terribly hopeful because basically this is all of the things that you and I have been talking about for the last several years uh, starting to fall into place, you know, uh, higher interest rates, creating a debt, you know, creating, um, you know, debt reversals and, and people are, people in governments are overextended on debt. And this is what you get, right? I mean, this is, and this is, I think really just the start of a very difficult period that we're going to be coming into. So we have talked about the government, Robin Peter to pay Paul, and he's tapped out. We talked about Literally, since we've known each other, I think the, the, the net debt has gone up over $10 trillion. Yep. It's hard for me. I'm, I just entered my 40th year in and around Wall Street. And it's still difficult to imagine that we have anything with a T in debt. Now we have deficits with a T, trillion-dollar deficits. So the debt issue a lot of people know about. What a lot of people didn't know about, they learned quite quickly on how banks really work. And that there's just like the government, there's not a lot of money sitting somewhere where they can just take it and give it to anybody that comes walking in looking for all their money. I the the issue that troubles me, Ed, and no one maybe you talked about it, if anybody would have been you. Didn't the Federal Reserve think of this when they knew they were gonna raise rates that banks out there would be in these positions and that they would encourage more regulators to look how people are because they got to be getting in bad shape. I mean, the cop out, you know, is to say, well, uh, the regulators didn't look as hard. Well, the Federal Reserve should have been on top of that. Right. You know, and this bank, of course, went way beyond normal. It did a lot of things of highly questionable and had questionable people working there and all. But now the talk, which troubles me the most, Ed, is to talk about insuring all deposits. Yeah. Because that is the ultimate moral hazard. If I'm in a bank and I know the worst case scenario, whatever we do with this money, if it bombs out, the government's going to come in and take care of our depositors, I'm going to take much more risk than I normally would have. So I think that's one of the worst things that they're talking about out of this head. Well, I brought this up when when Elizabeth Warren was saying we should have 10 million FDIC uh, insurance limit should be 10 million dollars. It's like, who are you bailing out 
for a $10 million deposit in a single bank, right? I, I mean, you're not bailing out mom and pop stores. You're not bailing out individual depositors. FDIC was set up for individual to cover individual depositors so they could have confidence in putting that money in banks rather than sticking it in their mattress, which is what was kind of going on before the FDIC was, was launched because the bank failures wiped out you know, just normal, you know, mom and pop stores and, and individual families prior to that. Um, this is a this is a, a systemic bailout on the back of taxpayers. And it's a it's a completely circular idea. Uh, we, <laughs> I think people get a very funny idea about where this money comes from in the first place, which is <laughs> that if Taxpayers are providing the bailout. It's coming out of their own pockets. One way or the other, it's going to come out of their own pockets. You can't borrow your way out of that. Borrowing our way out of things is what got us into this position in the beginning. Let's stick with that for a minute. I'll let you respond to that because I was just as I was just as uh, appalled by the idea that we're going to create this magnificent moral hazard in banking and basically tell all the bankers, hey, just do whatever you want to do, pal. We're going to bail you out no matter what. Yeah, so we've talked about living beyond our means, uh, the government especially, on all levels, state, local, uh, individuals, you know, most, you know, almost 75% of Americans now work in paycheck to paycheck. Right. And they were impacted by the inflation kick that they had to use credit cards just to pay for necessities. And that opens another Pandora box. We could talk at another time about the coming retirement crisis. But this is a country that has, like you said, continues to borrow against the future. And the future is, is, is coming right now. It's, it's getting to the point where you're just no longer be able to kick the can. Ed, the CBO says that they're going to add another $19 trillion over the next 10 years. I think it'll be faster. And oh, so, so the interest on our debt is going to become an interest. Forget about ever getting it back. And one thing people learned here, uh, hopefully some have learned, is that you always have someone else's liability. Now, supposedly the United States debt is the best liability to have, you know, that they can honor through their full faith and credit. I don't know if it's as strong as that as more as it might have been 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, one of the things now, like you brought up, is you have people that have large sums of money. It's not the working class. You know how I describe this, Ed? This is how I describe what happened. The elites get bailouts, the poor get handouts, and the rest of us pay the bill Right on both sides. And this bailing out, listen, you were worth $10 million. You put $8 million there. You know, you had a lot of money, you had a lot of time to put it in different places too. Now, granted, maybe something higher than two fifty. You know, if you know, but not ten million. You know, that's you know, but something where, look, the average person has less than two hundred thousand dollars saved. Then, right? Yeah. So, so for the majority of Americans, two fifty is fine because. Basically, and of course, if it's in a brokerage, the SIPC covers it for up to 500000 okay? But this was a bailout of the elites. Listen, the governor of California was caught calling the Fed on the weekend, encouraging them to, 
do the bailout because he had $8 million in there from a winery that he has in California. I mean, this was not Mr. and Mrs. America that was being impacted. This was the super upper echelon. And they were bailed out thanks to us working class people in with our tax dollars. And, and again, when I wrote about this last week, I said this is a massive paradigm shift. If you're going to start doing things like this, um, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere, because I think that I think that there's been enough blowback to the idea that maybe it's it's slowed down now. But the FDIC was again, it was supposed to protect small depositors. This is a completely different idea. It's a completely different paradigm, and I think people who recalled the 2008 institutional bailouts are still sore about that and aren't interested in seeing uh, the, you know, the people who are, you know, multimillionaires get bailed out by the federal government. Um, that does bring me to investment strategies, but I want to come up, I'm going to come back around to that because obviously that's your forte, but I, I want to stick to the idea of, of how this is circulating around. You said the Fed should have recognized that raising the interest rates would have created this type of issue in, the, in, in at banks, and there's a complicated. I mean, it's not that complicated, but it's it's not necessarily well understood that banks. You know, when you deposit money in banks, they have to put that money someplace, <laughs> and because of the um, pandemic, there weren't a lot of really great options for investments. There weren't there certainly weren't any businesses to loan to because businesses were being shut down. So they bought all of these treasury notes thinking that you know it's money's cheap this is a relatively risk free investment and it was right up until the time interest rates started going up in response to inflation and banks unlike people are rated on their um asset to liability uh worksheets and this created a, a much higher liability level which meant that the banks you know, capitalization was was uh, wasn't sufficient anymore, and this is what happened with signatures. What happened, among other things, signature had other things. They invested a lot in um, commercial real estate and in rental properties that ended up uh, that ended up uh, uh, getting uh, crashed because of rent, new rent control laws. Uh, but you know, Silicon Valley Bank is a really good example of this. Um, but it's not limited to that because banks all over the country were investing in these things, right, Peter? And it was the Federal Reserve that drove interest rates down to near zero. It, was, it wasn't like they didn't have anything to do with it. It was their decision and that led to this. And let's not forget, outside the United States, there were actually negative interest rates. And knows what those people were facing if there was a bank contagion, you know, in Europe especially. Right. I, I right. think I, I think the, the story is going to, this is how I think it's going to play out, Ed. I don't think like you, I, I've said from the moment this happened, I didn't see a big bank run. Okay. If they nipped it within two days, then it wasn't going to happen. You know, people are calming down. Yes, some people transferred the money and so forth, but they pretty well almost put it to bed right now, unless there's something total we don't know about that was even more gracious than what that bank was doing. But here's where it's going to hurt. Regional banks, which is the backbone to small businesses, the the big four don't lend to mom and pop stores. Okay, that's not where you go. You go to your local regional banks, etc. They are going to be put on a much more stricter diet. Uh, there's no question that that's what's going to happen. 
as, as governments always do when something goes wrong, they have overkill on the other side. They're also going to be concerned about taking the risk, you know, that they might have thought of before. Uh, they all want to keep their jobs. You know, they want the stock to you know, hopefully recover. A lot of them have stock options. A lot of these regional banks are publicly held. So where that opens a little bit of a Pandora's box is in the commercial real estate, because yeah. those banks, those banks do a lot of lending in that area. And there's been some concern, which has been multiplied now because of this, that some part of the commercial real estate is having difficulties, particularly office buildings, because of the change of dynamics at COVID and people not working in offices anymore and slowdowns and all this other type of stuff. So we won't know how greatly that's impacted at least for several weeks, if not a few months. And this is tied into what looks like a much slower economy and most likely a recessionary economy, which will only put more weight on that. So this isn't just a one-off, hey, everything's hunky-dory, you can go back to just how you are. Because what no, almost no one talked about in this, and I know why, because they didn't want it to be talked about, the pensioners and insurance companies were facing the same dilemma as the banks. They bought those investments as well. Now, the insurance companies had a little bit of a break because not everybody's going to call up and say, cancel my whole life and send me my cash value. Okay, So they weren't in the baddest position. They could wait out and hopefully rates come down and these bonds go back up in price. And hopefully they did a lot of hedging. But the pension companies are a different story because you and I both know, we've talked about it. And I think in the last show, we brought it up again, that yep. so many pensions are underfunded in the United States. Here in New Jersey, it's a big issue uh, of underfunded pensions. And when you have a down market where there's losses, and then you have issues like this, it's very, very tough. And, you know, uh, I, I hear what the don't worry, be happy crowd on Wall Street telling everybody, don't worry, it always comes back, this, that, and the other. It doesn't always come back. There were times where the Dow took 27 years to get back to a level that it once was. So this isn't over yet, but for the very short term, the worst of it is currently behind us. Well, that's good. I mean, that's good news. I mean, I'm not rooting for failure here, but the the dynamics here are are pretty much in place. Now, when Powell was announcing the latest interest rate hike, and this is right before Credit Suisse uh, had to be bought out by UBS, which you know was a little um, a, a little frightening. Um, because it showed that the contagion had kind of spread around a bit. Uh, Deutsche Bank was was teetering a little bit, but apparently has been uh, backstopped now. I'm not sure exactly how that took place. But the fact is, is that they're still holding these bonds. They're holding them. They can hold them for the long term. I mean, the point was made that, well, you know, you don't take a loss until you actually sell, which is true as far as it goes. But banking is different than than um, than other investors. You know, if if I if I buy into something and it and it takes a hit, you know, I've got an investment portfolio. It's a, it's not a big investment portfolio, but you know, I've got one. And if if the managers who are running the thing buys into something and it takes a hit, um, and they hold it for a while, it will eventually catch up. Well, may or may not, but the but the losses can be minimized at least. But that's not what happens in banking. As long as it, 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 I'm sorry to, to complete that thought, as long as you don't sell, you don't take the loss. But that's again, that's not what's true in banking. In banking, 
you know, banks have to show that their assets to, to liabilities ratio, their capitalization ratio is enough to cover deposits. And if you're suddenly your assets drop significantly, then suddenly you're underwater on that. And that's exactly what happened with SVB. It's exactly what happened with Signature. It was what was going to happen to Credit Suisse. Um, and so we can say, well, the worst of it's over. It does look like the, you know, the deposit stream has ended from the smaller and regional banks uh, to, the, to the big four or five. There was a, a news article on that, but that doesn't mean that the crisis is over. And if the Fed continues to um, hike interest rates, which I think they're not going to do now for a while, because Jerome Powell said, look, I mean, we may get the same effect just from the fact that banks aren't going to be lending a whole lot of money and that we may not need to do this again. Um, but if they do, every time those interest rates goes up, it, the problem, the, the balance sheets become worse for banks. And <laughs> I don't know, you know, in a month or so, if, if, if the Fed decides they're going to do another, you know, 25 basis point increase, I'm not sure how that shakes out in the banking industry. Well, I, I think they're doing a lot of hoping and praying because they're hoping certain things change that they can see, they can demonstrate lower inflation is slowing down and get away with, you know, saying, okay, we don't have to hike now, but we're looking. Uh, I, I don't think it's in their best interest to keep raising rates unabatedly as, as they were probably planning to do before all this banking stuff. Right. But the other thing that troubled me about this and I think it was the most concerning thing about it. If you remember, Powell came out, he had the press release, they raised rates, he's talked, the market kind of recovered, it was rallying during his early part of his speech, and then the market took a nosedive. It lost 500 points in an hour because Yellen, who was at another point, was saying the opposite. And this is the lady that said five years ago, there'll never be another financial crisis in her lifetime when she was the head of the Fed. And what was concerning me about that was it was clear and evident that up until that point, the Treasury and the Fed were not coordinating, making sure they were both on the same path. Now, I said that evening, by the next morning, she's going to walk that back, and she certainly did. Uh, but the concern there is the Fed has been behind this from day one, Ed. First, yep. they lowered rates. It's all hindsight, but let's face facts. Hindsight's always 2020. Right, sure. They yeah. lowered rates too far. They did not realize the inflation implications. When it started to show, first they said there was none. Then it was that famous word that was tossed around for a while, transitory. That <laughs> I think I think that's going in the history books. We're not going to hear that word use anything to be described anymore by a Fed official. And then, of course, it really got away from them. And that's why they had to do what they had to do. And for the first time, I'll tell you this, I looked at Powell, and it's just a judgment. It's an individual thing. He wasn't the same man, this one, as he's been previous ones. I think this has gotten to him. So uh, all in all, we escaped, perhaps, certainly not, and I didn't think it was going to be like 2008. But when you combine with a whole other bunch of things that are happening simultaneously, not even involving banking, the whole picture with this coming as part of it has only made the picture uglier. Well, and and part of that is the um, the position it puts the federal government in. I, I was looking at something they were talking. Uh, I forget what it was. It, it wasn't even really focused on uh, service on interest. Um, they were talking about 
what what part of the budget increased the most over the last four years because of the pandemic? And the answer was um, food stamps, basically, the, you know, the, the entire structure of SNAP and other things that went up like, you know, 102% or something like that it hasn't really come back down, which, okay, we knew that because a, a lot of the relief for uh, COVID-19 went through food stamps um, and went through that whole SNAP process. But you know what the second highest rate was? Was um, service on the interest. It went up like 70%. Yeah. That's not coming back down. I mean, it's not coming back down. That went up for a reason. The SNAP stuff, that's discretionary spending. The interest is, we're on the hook for that. It went up 70% over four years because of all the money that we created and then spent in the pandemic. And we're coming to a point now where the interest payments alone on our national debt uh, is going to outstrip things like defense spending. <laughs> it's almost close to that as it is. Um, and honestly, maybe even the entire discretionary spending part of the budget, which is the smaller, which is the smaller uh, budget for the federal government. Um, and when that happens, I'm not sure where you go from there because we're continuing to borrow to add to that, Peter. And the worst part of it was when we were down at near zero interest rates, what does the Fed do instead of getting, don't do one in two years, do as many 30 years as you can at two or 3%, wherever it was down to. No, they used short term, you know, to raise money. And so think about it. Let's just say interest rates went back to 5% and averaged that. Well, there's 30 something trillion dollars. Well, that's one point, almost 1.6 trillion in interest expense. We only do four point something, I forget what the exact number was, a trillion in total income for the government. If they're going to throw another 19 trillion on that within 10 years, we're going to get to the point where we're going to struggle to pay just the interest. And remember, as you pointed out, a lot of other areas are suffering because of that. And we're going around the world spending all this money, defense sending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over Ukraine and this place and that at a time where Ed, the geopolitics is flipping 180 for the United States around the world. Yep. The, the changes that are going on and how the United States is falling in stature and China actually by going over to the Middle East and convincing the Saudis to start dealing with the Iranians and the Saudis saying that they're prepared to not trade in dollars and you know sell their oil for uh, uh, Chinese money and, and, and Russian rubles. I mean, there are so many things happening. Brick, more countries wanting to join the BRIC nations. The BRIC nations talking about an alternative currency. And if the United States, for whatever reason, ever loses its world reserve currency, that'll be the beginning of the end because they get away with it. They were able to run these deficits like that. But all empires eventually come to an end. And this this one is clearly weakening, clearly, on yeah. social, political, and economic levels, both here and abroad. And I'll tell you, before we get to investment strategies, because I do want to touch on that while you're here, it reminds me, or I don't want to say it reminds me, I wasn't there at the time, but it does have some similarities to the British the British Empire position um, in World War I. And especially just the immediate post-World War One, post-Great War period, where their debts just simply overwhelmed their imperial status and they had to start, they had to start, 
you know, slicing off parts of the empire because they simply couldn't afford it anymore. And people, I mean, they were, they were starving at home while trying to maintain an empire abroad in those uh, first few years after the great war. And it's not sustainable. And I mean, we're not there yet, but <laughs> we're going in that direction, whether people want to recognize it or not. Um, that type of national debt is simply not sustainable in the long run. With that in mind, though, Peter, we've got a few minutes left. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to tap into your into your vast knowledge of such things, and I know that you can't speak to specifics because every person is different. If you want specifics, you go to petergrandich.com, make contact with Peter. He can um, then you, you can then talk with each other about what your specific plan should be. But in general, looking at the lay of the land. What investment strategies would you consider um, uh, prioritizing in such an environment? So, as you know, by the end of 2021, I felt there was no reason to own any U.S. equities. There were going to be a significant downturn in the stock market. It has happened. Last year, retirement accounts lost an average 25%. Add another 10 to 15% in inflation. That account is not having purchasing power like it just had 18 to 24 months ago. And if it doesn't come back, even if it doesn't go down, but it just doesn't go up, it's going to be a struggle. I don't think yet we're even close to where I would want to be uh, seriously invested in the equity market. Some of the things that still has to come down is valuations are still too high. Uh, you know, yeah. the QQQ on the NASDAQ is trading at 20 something times. It's still, it, it's still kind of, you know, out there. Uh, we don't know how severe the recession is going to be. We're going to have one. Uh, no question about it, we're going to have one, but how severe it is. There are other competitions now. That we, you know, the, There was a point when interest rates were near zero that everybody said, well, I got to go to the markets, the only place you know, that I, I can make money in. That one-way street is not only turned into a two-way street, but it also has a lot of traffic circles now. And the professional community is suffering because they had the lack of experience of only driving on a one-way street. But I just don't think at this point in time, uh, I would want to have a lot of exposure. I think the stock market's going to return somewhat to what it used to be in the early days of my nearly 40-year career. It's going to be a place where you buy and sell part ownerships of businesses, and businesses don't do well on average if the economy's not doing well. So that's the first thing. I think interest rates, I agree with you. I don't think they're going to stay on a path. I don't think they're going to go much higher. I don't know if they're going to cut right away because they'd have to really see a real decline in inflation or a real just total panic that they, they had to come out that way. But bonds would probably be the lesser of two evils. And quite frankly, I think one of the reasons why we've seen gold do so well is people realize there's only one investment that's been around with a track record for a couple thousand years where it's not somebody else's liability because even treasuries are a liability of the United States. Right. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I've told people that, and this, you'll get a kick out of this. I've said people, listen, you should own gold and hope it doesn't go up. And almost everybody says the next sentence, why do you want me to buy something if it's not going to go up? And I was going to say, because if it does go up where you do have a lot of your money and financial assets probably went down. So one of the things that people are finally opening their eyes to, at least, is gold, at least as an insurance policy. What we should have learned on all of this is to have not everything in, in paper assets, to have right. some sort of 
hard assets. And I don't consider gold and real estate the same type of hard asset, okay? Uh, normally, real estate, people have borrowed against it, so there is a liability out there. The big gorilla, and we'll probably talk about this the next time I'm on, but the big unknown is the derivatives. Most Americans and most professionals don't even understand what derivatives are. But the big fear is there are so many derivatives in the trillions of dollars that if we ever do had a contagion or a real sharp decline worldwide of financial markets, it's a Pandora's box that really no one has any idea what will happen from that and all. One of the things that I've always said, and I know Ron Paul was big on this, and a couple, I think even his son was, is to limit uh, the derivative market. It's gone. There's no really regulation over it, and there's so much of it. They showed the other day between J.P. Morgan and Twos, they had like it was unbelievable amount of uh, derivatives. So that's something that a lot of people don't know about. Most financial advisors don't know about it. But that's that's the biggest gorilla out there. And then the retirement crisis, Ed. I, I'm hearing from more people now that have gone the traditional financial planning route and recognizing that's not the best route to go. And, you know, people have to learn. And you, you know my slogan, less is more. Right. You know, you did it. You know, you took care of from the time I met you. You And I've always told and you're 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 the poster child for this. It's not only an economically great saving, but you feel so much better when you don't Absolutely. have that load. Absolutely. I feel a lot better about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's much, life is much more manageable when you, you know, for those who can do it, for those who can get themselves out of debt and, and to some extent by downsizing and, and, and right sizing your, you know, your, your, the way you live your life, um, it's, it's a tremendous burden off your back. It's just one thing that you don't have to worry about any longer. And I, you know, when it's, when, when you're, when your main asset is in the clear, man, I'm telling you, it, you can feel really good about the way things are going and you can withstand a lot of stuff that's coming your way there. You know, in the last financial crisis, people bought houses and I'm not going to go into value judgments about what they were buying and all that, but they found themselves underwater on their mortgages in the middle of this crisis. Those who could, those who had the money to pay, make the payments anyway, were able to survive it by just waiting it out. But some of these people were going through speculative, you know, real estate flipping and stuff like that and end up losing their shirts. Um, I'm, I'm happier at this stage of life. Like I said, coming up to a, <clears throat> a uh, milestone birthday, uh, <laughs> do not have to worry about that. And I mean, you're the person who really sort of alerted me to this, who made it crystal clear to me. And I think that you've been doing that with your clients. Yeah. You know, about, those about eight, out of 10, eight out of 10 people don't want to listen that because what happened is it's come a way of life in America. I mean, every commercial is a guy telling you, Hey, you can save 5% if you use this credit card, not reminding you that you probably spent 95% on something maybe you didn't even need just so right. you can get the 5% reward. Uh, college kids are hit up right on campus as soon as they enter college about getting credit cards and debit cards. And so we, we become a society of living off of debt. And I'll just tie my faith in this one time on this. It's the reason why in scripture, at least, there's no positive word about debt. It, it, it's only spoken of potentially in a negative environment way. So if God or whoever was you want to say is the creator of that book, uh, they certainly were right about that. And uh, it's a hard lesson. And uh, but like you say is, 
not everybody, I understand that, but you can if you're willing to lower your what you think you need to get by. You right. know, even even lower middle class, if you want to call it, is still better than few billion people living in the world, how they're living. Okay. That's right. And uh, so if you can get just that thing over your head and a car to just get you to and from, and you don't need to have a new suit or the latest $400 sneakers, just buy some Keds or something and uh, skips as we used to call them. But, right. and I've done that. I, I've really lessened uh, luxury items, you know, to, to almost non-existent. And uh, you just, you sleep better too. You just, okay. everything seems to go better when you don't have that financial burden, you know, on your shoulders. Well, I'm glad you mentioned faith. We'll, we'll exit on this because it's Easter's coming up. Easter week is next week. Um, and I want to wish you a, a blessed and happy Easter season. He is risen. And, um, and uh, you know, in the end, what we're worrying about in this world is important because we have to live in this world. We have to, you know, we have to, uh, you know, we have to uh, walk the path of salvation in this world. And that means uh, an awful lot of complicated uh, things that we do. But in the end, um, you know, our faith will be redeemed. And uh, that's really our, our strength and our, and our hope. And uh, Peter Grandich is uh, always uh, a man of, a man of faith, a man of God. And you can find out more at petergrandich.com. And he's on Twitter at Peter Grandich. So be sure to check that out as well. Well, thank you, Ed. And Jesus did tell us to be in the world, but not of the world. That's exactly right, my friend. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Ed. Now that the political infighting is over and the sausage is being made in the House, it's time for Republicans to unite with one cause and fight back against Joe Biden and his radical administration. The GOP has promised to investigate Biden, family corruption, the border, big tech censorship collusion, the origins of COVID, the FBI, and intel agencies' attacks on the American people and more, and it's time to hold them to those promises. Here at Hot Air, we won't let up on holding them accountable. We unapologetically fight back against the radical left and squishy rhinos in Congress who fail the people. We bring you the truth and go to war against Biden's woke communist agenda. But we need your help. By becoming a VIP for uh, hotair.com, you can help us in this battle for our country. Just look at the House Democrats leader, Hakeem Jeffries. He's another divisive radical leftist and his communist Sesame Street speech proves it. If Republicans don't halt the Biden agenda and conservative media fails to hold them accountable, it could mean the end of our great country. Join us in the fight. Become a Hot Air VIP member or a VIP Gold member today and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA to receive a 40% discount on your membership. Stand with us and fight to save America. We will never give up. And thank you very much.